Hello and welcome to the February episode of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. Wintertime for sheep producers across the U.S. can bring extreme highs and lows, and I don't just mean temperatures. Challenges with managing the flock through harsh weather, sure, can sometimes feel overwhelming, uh, but this time of year is also the beginning of shearing and lambing for many, which are enjoyable yet stressful in their own right. One of the key aspects of setting your flock up for a successful production cycle and simultaneously making them able to endure cold temperatures is proper nutrition. And that doesn't always just mean get them as fat as possible. Proper winter nutrition of the flock is an art. And so we are lucky to have a true expert with us today to discuss navigating this sometimes tricky aspect of sheep management. Dr. Richard Earhart, Senior Small Ruminant Specialist at Michigan State University. Thank you very much for joining us for the podcast today. Hey, thanks, Jake. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to talking about this subject here today. Great. Uh, so, Dr. Earhart, I, I too am, am eager to hear what you have to say uh, today about sheep nutrition. But before we get into it, uh, can you provide just a little more background on yourself and, and how you came to be in the position that you're at today? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been at uh, Michigan State University as a sheep and goat specialist for about 12 years. Um, before that, I was at Cornell University working as a research scientist in sheep and sheep and cattle work mostly with metabolism. Um, I also own a flock of sheep. I've had up to 400 ewes at a time, and they're an accelerated lambing program. So I do. I have a little bit of skin in the game and some experience that way, which helps me, I think, with my job. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm. I'm bringing here. I do a little teaching. I teach in the vet school as well. So I've got a pretty broad appointment at MSU. Okay, great. Yeah. A lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way at times. Sure. Okay. So to get things started, um, I don't necessarily mean necessarily breed specific or even region specific at this point, uh, but just broadly speaking, why is winter nutrition so critical for a sheep? And and how are their bodies preparing for their natural production cycle during the winter? Yeah, well, I think the main considerations are most of the, you know, in most production systems, you know, our focus is to be uh, feeding the sheep to a productive state. And in the winter, um, many ewes are going to be pregnant, either at some stage of pregnancy. So it's important to understand what the requirements of pregnancy are. There's, you know, mid-pregnancy nutrition is more of a maintenance state where the animal doesn't need nearly the calories that they need late. And so you need to recognize that late pregnancy is a pretty critical window. And um, yeah, so you, that that's really what we're focused on is feeding them to their state of production and, uh, uh, and understanding that that's pretty different really. Sure. And so as a kind of a measuring stick, or, or maybe this isn't even the right measuring stick, um, what are some general targets for body condition score of use during this time of year? Uh, and is that the right way to kind of look at it? Yeah, I think body condition score is a very good measuring stick for any feeding program. Um, so for, you know, many systems that lamb in late spring, uh, the winter feeding can be a maintenance diet, as I said, to about 40 days before lambing. And we want to keep them in a, you know, during this maintenance period, we don't want them to be overly thin, but we'd like them to be in a condition score, if you're familiar, with about a two and a half to three. Um, and just a matter of keeping that condition. It's somewhat forgiving, though. If sheep lose a little bit of weight in mid-pregnancy, it's generally, you know, a time that's a little more forgiving. 
We don't want to short them on mineral nutrition during that period of time because the body pools can become drained. But um, then when we come to late pregnancy, we got to make sure that we do feed them um, and that they're on a positive weight gain and, and we need to increase their enrich their diet a fair bit. Sure. So, you know, we, you provided some specific targets, but what are what are some drawbacks? What are what could happen potentially if the ewes are not in the proper condition, either too thin or too heavy condition? Yeah, there's a little risk for both. I think if you look at most farms are going to there's occasionally some people have their sheep a little too fat coming into late pregnancy. I'd say the greater problem is probably inadequate body condition, but the consequences are going to show up as metabolic issues. And probably you're most familiar with the term pregnancy toxemia or twin lamb disease. You know, there's a risk for that, whether on both sides, if their ewes are too thin or too fat. Um, so, and the other thing is, I guess, chronically underfed ewes are just going to have less milk, lower lamb survival. And actually, it's going to affect their behavior. They're not going to be as good as moms. Sure. Absolutely. And so you touched on it. Uh, but my next question, you know, kind of expands on that that topic. Uh, you know, what, what, how do the nutritional requirements change for you, depending on if she is open or pregnant? And even of the pregnant females, if they're carrying one, two, or maybe more fetuses, you know, what are some general changes in their requirements? Yeah, um, that's real important to understand, and they're pretty stark, right? starkly different depending on the uh, number, their prolificacy, how many lambs they're carrying. It makes a huge difference. Are you carrying a single probably needs about 50% more calories in her diet during that last month of pregnancy. Are you carrying twins going to need about double, about 100% more? And are you carrying triplets is going to need, oh, probably 130 significantly more. So it, it makes a big difference what number of lambs are carrying. And that kind of gives you a kind of a good ballpark figure for, for, for what that should look like. Absolutely. Now the, you know, you're in a, a different region of the country than, than myself and we've got listeners spread across the U S is that, are those requirements fairly consistent across breeds or are you notice there are some differences in, in body types that uh, maybe a producer should be aware of? Yeah. I get asked that question more and more recently. It's interesting. I would say for the most part, not, um, you know, breeds differ a lot in the number of lambs they produce and in their size. But if you think about it more in terms of the size of the sheep and how many lambs they're carrying, that really defines your requirements. There are big changes in like the metabolism of a Columbia versus a Suffolk versus a Cheviot necessarily. So you think about it in terms of their size and how many lambs they're carrying. Okay. Or rearing. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think most shepherds do understand that nutritional demand is is up during late gestation and, and lactation. That makes common sense. But what are some mistakes that you see or have ran across that people have made with supplementing uh, either maybe too much protein or too little energy or, or vice versa? You know, what, what are some things that um, you've come across? I'd say overall, when I visit farms, um, Generally, you know, you'll run into the exceptional case where someone kind of feeds their sheep to death, <laughs> um, but it's not as common as energy shortage during late pregnancy. A lot of people just don't realize that their ewes may be a bit more thin or not in the body condition they expect, especially if they're not shorn. They might, you know, underestimate that. Um, the crude protein requirements of sheep are certainly less than lactation. So, yeah, I mean, they do have a protein requirement, but 
for twin sheep, it's not twin bearing ewes. It's not that high. It's around thirteen percent. Um, and you know, so if you are have you have higher pro- protein content forages, I would reserve those for lactation when they're going to make a bigger impact. Um, energy is really probably the prime consideration in terms of you know supplementing the diet during late pregnancy. Right. So those those uh, requirement increases that you mentioned for single and twin carrying um, use 50 percent, 100 percent. That's mostly uh, fat energy requirements that that's increasing. Yeah, it's mostly energy. That's exactly what I'm referring to. Protein. I mean, the protein requirements of a U at maintenance versus late pregnancy, they're different. But maybe, you know, the concentration might be go from like nine or 10 percent crude protein to 13. So it isn't. It's mostly an energy consideration. In okay. Yep. Now, uh, as I mentioned, you're obviously in, in Michigan uh, where snowfall and, and cold temperatures uh, are to be expected. Uh, now, can you talk a little bit about how temperature maybe stresses sheep and, and how that might change their nutritional requirements or, or needs or intake? Yeah, sure. I mean, anytime you have use that you're overwintering outside, um, you know, in a cold environment, they're going to have demands just to for energy, just to maintain home, just to maintain their temperature, um, and that's going to be influenced by just more than just the temperature. By you know whether they're protected from the wind or not, whether they're full fleece. I mean, most people are going to have full fleece sheep in the winter, hopefully. But um, yeah, those make a difference. Uh, you know, might make a twenty-five percent difference in requirements. We've got some folks who successfully overwinter sheep in very cold environments up in like close to the upper peninsula along the lake shore, Lake Michigan, and they can maintain their sheep in good body condition, but they have to calculate an increase in, in calories. You know, they're probably feeding their sheep 20, 20% more than somebody who had their sheep maybe in, in indoor housing, for example. Sure. Absolutely. And, and temperature is, is something that always kind of fascinates me. I mean, for those of us that are a little further South than you, um, other than last week, uh, we typically don't get the same winter extremes that you do. Uh, but does that mean that our sheep uh, aren't as stressed as yours during the winter? Or is it more of what they're used to, temperatures that are normal for them? Yeah, I think with all animals, that's the way, that's what's important is whether they're you – know, sheep are great at acclimating to many different environments. They can adapt well to a lot of different climates. So they're not very stressed once they're acclimated. But you get a big temperature swing. Like you guys had recently in Texas, wow, you know, that's going to be a pretty big stress, acute stress for that animal. Um, we have the same issue in spring when the temperature suddenly gets warm. The animals, you know, you see them for that first few days, they're panting, their respiration rate's high. So there is a little stress associated with those temperature changes, but they can acclimate to cold weather or warm weather given a few, you know, given a period of time. Right, Absolutely. Okay, so dealing with with those stresses, um, let's let's roll into more of the nutritional aspect. What are some different grazing options that you've looked at for supplying uh, proper nutrition to use during winter? Yeah, you know, in broad terms, I think the three ones that most people consider is stockpiling some kind of pasture or range, something that you would do where you would you know limit graze in the fall, sometime in summer perhaps, to reserve or you know defer, some people call it grazing until the late fall or winter. Um, where we live, and in many parts of the U.S., you'll have some cropping 
systems nearby where you could graze some residue. So that would be the second one. So you have stockpiling residue. And probably the third one that I've done a little work on is uh, grazing like a cover crop, which is also part of, you know, a crop production system. Those are usually annual forages in some parts of the country. There's a lot of opportunity for that as well. Sure. And I'm going to circle back to all of those here in a second. Let's let's start okay. with stockpiling. Uh, you know, for stockpiling grass, does that mean producers leave a pasture or a field completely untouched over the spring, summer, or growing season, or just lightly graze it? Um, and are there any measurements that somebody can use to gauge how much quality forage is out there in a, in a stockpiled pasture? Hmm. Yeah, you know, it is a trade-off when you stockpile. Um, most most of the systems I'm familiar with in our part of the country, people would stockpile a pasture until some point in mid to late summer. They graze it, sorry, or harvest it for hay or some some kind of machine harvest or grazing system. Or you know they'd stop they they they'd stop harvesting sometime in July or August, for example. And that time period, whether it's midsummer to late summer, does make a pretty big difference in the quality of forage versus the quantity, right? So, you know, if you start stockpiling earlier in the summer, your forage is gonna be a lot more mature, less digestible, a little lower quality, but you're gonna have more of it. Right. And then, you know, if you start stockpiling later in the summer, you're gonna have better quality because it's not gonna have as much time to grow and it's gonna be more vegetative, but, you know, you might not have enough. So finding that balance is um, a little, you know, something that, producers have to work out for themselves. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the trade-off that you're looking at. Sure. And, and obviously that's region and, and climate dependent too. Yeah. Okay. So for uh, crop residue, will sheep graze nearly every type of crop residue or are there some that are better than others? Or again, is that a regional thing or, or you know, what are kind of your thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah, you know, residue is going to vary in quality a bit, um, but all residue, most nearly all residue has has some excellent quality if it's at least lightly grazed. It kind of depends how much, you know, you force the animals to eat the residue. Yeah. I'll give you an example, like for corn, you know, which I'm more familiar, we have a lot of corn residue. And there's a lot of corn left in the field or a lot of, you know, material left in the field, but only say, you know, 10 to 25, 10% of it's great because a lot of so it's grain, really high quality residue. The next 15% say is pretty good. Like animals will gain weight in that 10%. The next 15%, they'll maintain their weight. But if you force them to eat pretty far into that residue, it'll be, they'll lose weight. So, you know, that's, that's basically the issue is how much of it. You need to be somewhat selective in grazing it if you expect the animals to gain weight or perform well on it. Sure. And so, can, you know, grazing crop residue and the merging of, of different agricultural enterprises is something that's increasing in popularity and, and it's becoming more prevalent. For uh, speaking to the shepherds uh, or the sheep folks that are out there, if they're interested in grazing crop residue on some land that they don't own, uh, you know, how can you or how can they explain the benefits to the owner of the property um, of having sheep on the field and, and grazing after they've already harvested. Yeah, I think the tangible benefits are things like uh, probably enhanced uh, 
residue recycling or nutrient recycling, it certainly gets uh, recycled more quickly. Um, you can improve weed control. So there's some weeds that are in the residue that can be consumed by sheep that'll help. Um, and basically, it's you could provide income for the farmer if you rent that residue, that grazing opportunity, that's a value added to the farmer. So those are the big ones. And you know, it's interesting, some people around me like seeing animals in their fields. So that's a less tangible one, but that's, you know, like I find that that becomes a selling point too, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's a big one, I think, that yeah. often gets overlooked, yeah. Okay, um, cover crops. Uh, now, I've done, I know you've done some some research on land performance on cover crops. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, if, if you could expand on that. Yeah, um, we, we have a lot of cover crop available from many part, in, in many parts of the U.S. Um, yeah, and cover crops have increased their usage or utilization as a cropping program has increased a lot in the last 15 years. Right. Um, it can fit a lot of the uh, needs of the ewe flock, and the quality is actually good enough to um, certainly background lambs on. Um, we found it can actually be good enough to finish lambs with good management and maybe the right conditions. We've noticed that, you know, when we have certain years, we can graze far enough into the fall along in a period of time before it gets really cold that we can we can provide a pretty high rate of gain. Like the lambs will be gaining close to half a pound a day, which is usually adequate to finish them. But then when there, you know, there's times like last year, we had a cold um, early snow. We had lambs out in the snow and just that energy of, you know, grazing in the snow takes it has a demand in itself those animals were just kind of you know not growing as fast not enough adequate to finish but it can fit certainly a background system for sure and it can and it, you know it can be a pretty inexpensive feeding program and certainly provide some great nutrition for a ewe flock so it can fit either system just have to be you know knowledgeable or aware of the limitations they're mostly weather related Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so let's talk about that. I mean, if, as we get deeper into winter here, um, especially for, for you guys in the north, if you've got a complete snow covered and even for us in the south where we're in full dormancy in, in terms of our pastures, you know, what are some options that producers have for, for stored feed? Um, when we, I'm thinking more along the supplemental route. You know, how, how do we how do producers handle that type of situation? Yeah, you know, for in general, it's probably not too complicated, right? It's mostly dry hay or silage as a forage system. You know, some, you know, maybe on the range, you might be able to supplement some grain. I know I've spent some time in Australia and they do a little grain supplementation in winter, but in our kind of climate where it's purely, or it's hundred percent dormant and it's cold, we got to provide some forage to the sheep. And so it's either dry hay or silage. I find that silage is a somewhat underutilized op, uh, option in sheep production for a lot of reasons. It's generally cheaper and higher quality, um, so there are some great benefits. But you know, the reason why it's sometimes a bit of a concern is because of the risk of uh, disease like listeriosis, which can which sheep are more susceptible to. But if you manage your silage carefully, uh, you can really reduce that risk. And it does also require a little bit of feeding equipment, which might be a barrier for some. But for a larger farm, it can be a re pretty reasonable investment because of the quality and because of the uh, the um, the cost. So you know that's that's something that I've worked with farmers with a fair bit is to develop you know more inexpensive 
feeding systems for their sheep, and they often revolve around silage feeding. And it, it's for the larger operation that that's going to work, obviously. Sure. And, you know, to your point there, I, I think the balance of quality and cost is, is also very pertinent when you think about purchasing hay uh, and supplying hay uh, in addition. All right. So, you know, whether we're talking about feeding or extended grazing, uh, you know, how concerned should we be about vitamin, vitamin and, and mineral supplementation? You brought that up earlier, um, but thinking about the production cycle of use during the winter, you know, how do vitamins and minerals play a role in that? Yeah, um, I, I'd say that mineral supplementation is a must in nearly all systems because most, in, in, I don't know of a single soil type in the U.S. that has adequate minerals to fit all the sheep's requirements. And therefore, the forage content is going to be limiting in one thing or another. It's going to vary according to the region of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes more, you know, it's important for any sheep to a certain degree, but it really shows up in late pregnancy if animals are. Uh, short in a particular mineral become deficient. You see it showing up in issues with their newborns and the exact nature of supplementation is going to vary. So it's hard for me to make a blanket recommendation, but you can certainly, you know, look, look at your region. And and I think it's that we do see, you know, that's a real sensitive time is late pregnancy. Minerals or excuse me, vitamins are also pretty important because the fat-soluble vitamins, the ones that we're concerned about, like vitamin A, D, and E, are going to be a lot lower in stored feed. Not everyone realizes, you know, they really degrade almost the minute you kill a plant and harvest it. So they're quite a bit lower. So, you know, for late pregnancy in particular, supplementing vitamin E has been shown to be pretty beneficial. A can even be limiting in some operations. And so, you know, spe- this becomes especially important, I would say, for the animals with the higher requirements, like those animals carrying twins or even triplets. That's when you start to see those issues become more important. Um, so those, those are things that we'd like to supplement in a winter feeding program, particularly with high requirement animals. Okay. Yeah. And, and how about a, an often taken for granted requirement, water? Uh, you know, how do requirements for water change depending on, again, production cycle uh, or the forage that, you know, the ewes have available to them at the, at the time? Yeah, I think you raise a great point there, Jake. I think it is dependent on the water content of the forage to a large degree. And recognize that in the winter, you know, when an animal is grazing 70 degrees versus 30 degrees, their water needs are about half. So the water requirements do drop considerably in, you know, if, if you look at a temperature change like that. Um, but in my region, our forage water content, you know, the stockpiled forage we might be grazing, certainly the cover crops are very lush. There's tons of water in those crops where water needs are met by forage water content. But now it's going to vary a little bit. So I tell folks to measure, to, to uh, be aware of their forage water content generally the forage water contents above like 55, 60%. It's going to meet the needs of the sheep pretty well, as long as they're not in that very late stage pregnancy. And oftentimes those are times we're probably not grazing sheep in, on extended grazing anyhow, or certainly lactation. They definitely need supplemental water for lactation, but the content of the water in the forage is adequate for many stages of production and meeting their needs. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We spend so much time during the, the winter when it gets very cold, 
breaking water troughs and, and making sure that animals have have adequate water. Um, and sometimes it's I shouldn't say bummed, but you know you you break the water trough and they don't go over and drink, and it's always a little confusing. But you know, again, it totally depends on on what they're eating and what they have available to them. Okay, so this might seem like an odd topic to to bring up when discussing winter management, but uh, because many sheep are, are producing, you know, a lamb in the, in the coming spring, uh, should we be concerned about parasite loads in use during winter? And, and how is that an added stress? Yeah, you know, that's an important consideration, Jake. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's going to seem, might seem sort of counterintuitive, but a mistake would be to treat all your animals on, when they're on dormant or stockpiled pastures and that's common behavior, like you know, I something I would have done, thinking it's doing some good to the animals. But if you treat all the animals, the 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 surviving parasites, and there's always going to be a certain percentage of parasites that survive even the most effective uh, dewormer treatments. They're going to be greatly enriched in the kind of genes you're going to basically select for or drug resistant parasites. Right. And so, you know, for these reasons, you should only treat as needed according to the risk. And the risk would be, you know, what, how contaminated those pastures were in the fall, which can be a little hard to gauge. Um, and then according to like their, their productive state too. So if they're young animals, if they're thin, and if they're maybe bearing or rearing like a large num a large litter, those are the animals you need to look at more critically and maybe focus your treatments on but there's plenty of animals probably within any flock that could probably be just fine untreated. And so keeping that population untreated is an important concept and often like something we don't do enough of. Um, you'll get just as good a control if you could target those animals that need to be treated and leave some untreated as if you treated everyone. And then you won't have the issue of resistance building year after year after year. The other little thing I'd add um, is that you want to make sure you use effective drugs. And I would say in combination, um, that is going to re at least slow down the development of drug resistance and these parasites. So winter is an important time because often we kind of do this blanket treatment, which ultimately hurts us. And um, some behavior probably we need to stop doing. Sure. And, and so if you're a producer out you know, monitoring your flock during the winter, what signs uh, are you looking for as, as far as animals that may need to be treated versus those that are fine and you want to leave untreated? Yeah, I think the best thing is to look at their, you know, anemia status or some, the, there's a term called the, the, the Fama Cha score, which is basically the color of their eyelids. I think that provides some pretty good information. Complexity is the animals sometimes aren't necessarily anemic right in early lactation, but it changes pretty quickly. So you need to monitor that pretty carefully. Um, but I think that's the best the best thing I can tell you is that uh, monitoring the color of their eyelids, and it's more than their eyelids. I mean, you see a kind of a ghostly color or pallor of sorts, even in the, you know, the nose, uh, the vulva, just the, you know, in a pink pigmented animal, there's more readouts than just the eye that you can look at that help. Sure, absolutely. Okay, um, let's change change traits here. Uh, you know, how does wool growth maybe affect nutritional requirements of, of animals any time of the year? I mean, you know, we're talking winter nutrition here, but you know, how does wool sort of um, 
does it does it up the nutritional requirements like you think, or is it that change maybe not as drastic as as one would expect? Yeah, you know, wool is really not as sensitive to nutrition, um, perhaps, but it challenges that you know fiber diameter does go down in well-fed use. So if you feed animals really well, you get a little lower fleece quality, but at the same time, you don't want the animals to exhibit like overt nutritional stress. So you know, if you do that, then they're going to have a wool break. So the requirements of wool are not very substantial. Like if you underfeed sheep, you'll see a reduction in wool, but it's not huge. You know, most of our better quality fleeces are going to be grown in parts of the country or parts of the world where they've got maintenance, nutrition, not necessarily even the best feed because there's that, you know, relationship between nutrient supply and fiber diameter that's kind of counterproductive. But we want our animals to be healthy. But yeah, the actual wool requirement isn't isn't going to make a huge impact on their nutrient requirements. Right. I guess maybe a better question I should ask is, how does shearing uh, affect either nutritional requirements or consumption, uh, essentially? Oh, yeah. Shearing is an important uh, consideration in all this because it's going to increase their appetite, both due to the fact that they're going to be a little colder. Um, and, you know, it's weird, but we don't really understand, but it also increases their appetite beyond even uh, their change in temperature. So animals that are shorn in late pregnancy or mid-pregnancy will tend to have larger lambs, about 10% bigger, actually. And it's due a little bit, I think, to feed intake, but there's other things at play that we don't quite understand. Um, and that can be an important consideration. Generally, having lambs that are 10% bigger, especially for, you know, animals that are bearing twins and stuff, is going to be important for their survival. So generally, shearing is advised for those reasons because it can help. Um, it's mostly a good thing. Right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. A lot of uh, folks that are maybe used to, to cattle management think of birth weight as you know an upper level that we really want to be concerned about and uh, cheap you know and often we we don't want lambs to be too small um, just for bigger reasons when they uh, are born there there's give and take on both sides of that absolutely uh, so uh, hair sheep um, are are rising in popularity uh, across the u.s they're certainly down here in in our part of the world in, in the southwest but across the u.s uh, Dorpers and Catons and other hair breeds are increasing in, in popularity. Uh, how do they handle cold temperatures and, and stresses? And are their nutritional requirements still in line with our more traditional wool breeds? Yeah, I would say that they can handle the cold pretty well. Um, we have hair sheep in our country. Uh, we don't Generally, I don't have a lot of producers overwintering them in real extreme conditions, however, so I'm not going to be able to speak to that. Like the same farms that will overwinter full fleece use in, you know, higher winds and cold temperatures, yeah. but they're, it, it, they're not that fragile at all. I mean, they can handle cold. Um, same with meat goats, even. We have meat goat flocks that are doing fine in the cold. Um, you might want to consider some... Uh, wind breaks for those animals just like even for a full fleece sheep is going to do better with some protection from the wind but they can certainly handle the cold just fine right absolutely okay 
So this is this has been a great discussion, Dr. Herr. I really appreciate it. And one question that I always like to ask as we start to wrap things up uh, here on the podcast is, can you leave our listeners with one big takeaway message from uh, all the information that you've supplied today? What is what is one thing that they can put in their pocket, go back home and and really think about when they're designing their own management program? Well, I'd say the key for winter feeding is just the kind of points I brought up related to making sure we meet, you understand the productive state of the sheep in your particular flock. You need to understand when those ewes are in, in need the higher requirements in late pregnancy and make sure that you meet those requirements. Also, I think the other big point is to strategize how you use your feed resources. So recognizing that they're not going to have the same requirements, much lower requirements in mid pregnancy, and you can use lower quality feeds. It's important to, to, to strategically feed those sheep and reserve those. So how you manage your feed inventory is very important. You need to use your resources wisely to hold the better feed for those productive states. And if you meet the requirements, those sheep are going to do well and it's gonna be uh, you know, a really good investment for your farm. So it's really a matter of using a, a, a feeding strategy or allocation strategy for feed resources during winter feeding. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great point to, to leave off on. All right. Well, that, that about does it for time for us today uh, for this episode of, of ASI's Research Update. Uh, but again, again, I really want to thank you, Dr. Earhart, for joining us. I think you, you provided some great information to our listeners. We really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you, Jake. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you about this subject. And uh, good luck with the rest of this uh podcast it seems like it's been really successful and i think a lot of producers are really appreciating it and appreciate all the work you put into this oh great well thank you uh to you listeners be sure and join us again next month uh, as we delve into another new topic uh, but for now remember eat lamb wear wool and keep your sheep full they'll pay you back for it that about does it got folks have a great day <laughs>